You're listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Scaligo lately on AO3. It's 2.30 a.m. I slowly come awake. I go to the window, open it. The gust of chilled air feels good, refreshing, but not as refreshing as the first puff of one of Scully's cigarettes will feel. I found them about a week after she left. I had smelled the smoke on her from time to time, and she would always openly admit to it. At particularly stressful times, she would buy a pack. It helped her to think, she had said, to focus on things that weren't scientific or cut and dry, black and white. It was the gray area she had trouble analyzing. And then our relationship creeped into the gray area, and I started to smell the smoke more and more. I had never been able to find where she kept them. Then one day I cut my foot stepping on a shard of glass from a broken beer bottle. It was from throwing it across the room in a fit of rage the night before. I was at a low point, okay? I acknowledge that. Anyway, I hobbled over to the pantry to get the first aid kit. It was something Scully had graciously left for me when she moved out. She had no use for it now. Cutting me out of her life was all the first aid she needed. Neatly tucked among the gauze, alcohol wipes, and pair of mini flashlights was an open pack of Morley's kind of camouflaged with the red and white packaging. There were seven left. Like I said, I was in a bad place at that time, in a constant tug of war with myself, wanting so badly to call her, but knowing I shouldn't, knowing she didn't want me to. So I used these seven cigarettes as a sort of challenge. I would smoke one each night at 2.30, when I'd inevitably come awake after an unsettling dream, and if by the time they were gone... I still felt like I needed to call her. I would. I was proud of myself for this. What a great exercise in self-restraint, right? Harmful effects aside. Yet here I am on the seventh night, grabbing that final cigarette along with my phone. I think I knew the whole time that I would call her. It just felt like the best thing would be to drag it out as long as I could manage. But all it managed to do was prolong the pain. Each night I would flick the lighter, watching the sparks glint in the darkness, and think of her eyes, how they could be the most vivid, radiant blue, bright and sparkling, but they could also go dark and stormy, a slate bluish gray. When they would darken like that, I would feel the most helpless feeling I'd ever felt in my life. And as one sorry son of a bitch, that's saying something. I saw it in her eyes a lot more towards the end. They often accompanied the cigarette smell. So I was feeling helpless a lot. I'm not blaming her, mind you. That wouldn't be fair. Although since when is anything in life, especially in hers and mine, fair? Where was I? God, the nicotine makes me feel so scattered. How can Scully say it focuses her? So, yeah, I was feeling helpless. Not just helpless, but overwhelmed with the feeling. And then she left. You have any idea how devastating it is to feel abject despair and have the one person you cling to for your very survival walk out on you? Death. It feels like death. 
But again, let me stress, it was not her responsibility to get me well. I know she wished, and still wishes, that she could. I know I made her feel that it was her responsibility, and that must have made it harder for her to leave. But she still did, and I wanted to die. It's 2.30 a.m., I note as I lean down to light the cigarette with the stovetop burner. I'll buy packs of cigarettes, but never a lighter, so it won't become a habit. It's a lie, I tell myself, one among many. Like that I don't miss him, that leaving was a good idea. The nicotine hits my bloodstream. I can think clearer. I begin to pace. I run over the list in my head, the reasons why I needed to leave. It made me feel mildly better at the beginning, but it has been less and less lately. The reasons just don't hold weight anymore. It's hard to believe they ever did. But now, what's the alternative? I've dug myself into a hole while trying to hold my ground. I wouldn't take me back if the roles were reversed. I wouldn't forgive me for claiming that walking away was the only way to help. Give it time. This becomes my mantra, one that is both unhelpful and mocking. Give what time, exactly? For me to not miss him anymore? To not love him so much that it doesn't hurt to live apart and not speak or see each other's faces every day? As if on cue, my phone buzzes on the kitchen table and the screen lights up with a text message. I know before looking that it's him. You up? That's rather familiar considering the circumstances, Scully thinks. But then again, didn't our relationship start out just like that? Familiar upon meeting, a confidential intimacy established on our very first case. She picks up her phone, closes out the message app, and calls him directly. He stares at the screen, frozen in shock, then answers it. Hi. Hi, she responds. I didn't expect... Yeah, I can't sleep. Me either. Scully hums in acknowledgement, and the line goes silent. After a painful 20 seconds, he says, I guess I don't have anything to say, really. I, um, I just need, uh, wanted to hear your voice. He quickly follows that up. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. It's okay, she says in a slightly dishearteningly flat way. I guess I wanted to hear yours, too. More silence, despite having just admitted that they want to hear each other. Scully bites her lip and blinks back hot, stinging tears that threaten to appear. Mulder swallows roughly. Then, you know, you can still call me any time, Scully. And you. He wars with himself and folds in a heartbeat. You can come home. No reply. His chest seizes. Please, Scully, come home. He can hear an intake of breath, and he braces himself. I can't, she whispers. It's not a home to me right now. He grabs onto that right now and holds onto it for dear life, for there's a hint of hope in those words. Okay, I understand. She notices a break in his voice, and suddenly she's angry with herself for calling him. This was a mistake, she says. Good night, Mulder. He clears his throat and nods, even though she can't see him. 
He cannot bring himself to say goodbye, so he ends the call. It's 2.30 a.m. I slowly come awake. I know that something's just not right. Staring at the ceiling, I do the math in my head. It's been eight months since we spoke on the phone in the middle of the night. I had told him that our house didn't feel like home to me, but I knew at the time that this stupid apartment never would be one either. Home would always be wherever he was, but he, my molder, had disappeared on me, vanished, leaving me to share a home and a life with a shell of the man who had my heart. I just couldn't do it anymore. And now I find myself in a similar position. I can't continue on like this. I am becoming my own shell of a person, unable to escape the fog of sadness that envelops me. I've been homeless for far too long. It's 2.30 a.m. I've been lying awake, turning things over in my head. All the work I've been doing, the progress I've made, seems significant. I have seen the error of my ways and recognized and faced my own traumas. This is my job now, that's how I think of it. Getting better, getting well enough to be with her, to make our home a home again. I put in the hours and the effort, and she is worth every bit of it. Even though going on antidepressants, adjusting to the drugs, getting through the side effects was pure hell, I would do it all again if it meant getting her to come home to me. There was a point, however, during these past eight months, where something shifted, and I wanted to get better for myself, too. My therapist called it a breakthrough. It was horribly cliche, but I agreed. I felt stronger, like I had developed an emotional strength, like I had developed an emotional strength. With this came a resolve, to remodel, to build a home for both of us, a place where we could repair and heal, giving each other both the support and space to do so. I don't mean physically. This unremarkable house is actually pretty great. It's more of a mental renovation, to create the opportunity for her to want to come home, to see that she can call it that again. Electronic light brightens the room for a moment before the ringtone on my phone sounds from its spot on the nightstand. I know before looking that it's her. Mulder answers it immediately, not caring what kind of message that sent. Hi. She replies with tears, silently crying on her end of the line, but he knows that silence. Hey, Scully, he says softly. Talk to me, please. Mulder. It comes out on a stifled sob. I'm sorry. No, let me stop you right there. No apologies, okay? She sniffs. If anyone should be apologizing, it's me, Mulder says. And I want to. I'm ready. But I think it needs to happen on your terms. I can't do this anymore, Mulder. It's cryptic. Worry creeps into his brain. What can't you do, Scully? He asks gently. She takes a deep breath, steadies herself. I want to come home. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, 
you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.